Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This past week, Governor J.B. Pritzker delivered a State of the State speech that was a call to arms about fighting corruption, a confident assessment of things his administration has done over the past year, and a challenge to get more done in the spring legislative session. How's that going to go? Well, we're going to talk about it this weekend with someone who sees things a bit differently than Pritzker does. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. is with the Illinois Policy Institute. It's a free market think tank that keeps an eye on government from a somewhat more conservative side. Adam Schuster is Illinois Policy's Director of Budget and Tax Research. He studied everything from the state's pension crisis to property tax relief. He has a master's from NIU and he's worked for the Labor Department and the state of Illinois before he uh, joined the uh, Illinois Policy Institute. Adam Schuster, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, Well, when Illinois Policy did its own State of the State article, uh, it showed that Illinois has gained jobs during uh, J.B. Pritzker's first year, which is a lot better than it did under Rob Lagojevich in his first year, I suppose, but not as good as it was under Pat Quinn or Bruce Rauner. So what should people make of a statistic like that? After all, Pritzker is just getting started. Well, I think the best thing to do is compare our growth rate to the rest of the nation because the national economy is doing quite well. We're in the midst of uh, one of the longest expansions on record, and Illinois is only gaining jobs at about half the rate of the rest of the country. And uh, Governor Pritzker did tout you know, uh, the unemployment rate falling as well as some other, um, I would argue, very carefully picked statistics. But when you look at sort of the benchmark economic growth statistics, things like GDP, jobs growth, uh, growth in personal income, Illinois is lagging the national average. We're lagging other states. We're ranked 32nd in job growth. And if you take out government employment, we're ranked 38th in job growth. Uh, So the economy is doing okay in Illinois because the national economy is doing okay. But relative to where we could be and relative to the rest of the nation, we're really not doing well. And we're continuing to lose population, which is is probably the biggest economic problem we face in the state. Is it an encouraging sign, though, that uh, that the job growth in Illinois did better than its surrounding states, um, with the exception of uh, Kentucky and Missouri? Well, I think, again, you know, Illinois is one of the largest states. We're a very dynamic state. We have a lot of natural advantages. We could be doing a lot better than we're doing. And when you look at the drop in the unemployment rate in Illinois, we're one of the only places in the nation where it's being caused by a declining labor force. So the majority of the rest of the country, the unemployment rate is dropping as the labor force continues to grow. In Illinois, if we didn't see this drop in the labor force, our unemployment rate would be significantly higher than it is today. So I don't want to say that it's all doom and gloom, but you know we certainly are lagging where we could be, and I would argue where we should be relative to other states during this period of national growth. And in terms of the overall picture, 
um, where do you see the major problems? What is causing the state to not do as well as it should? I would argue the two largest things holding us back are our high total tax burden, in particular property taxes, and our high debt burdens. Um, there's a, a broad body of economic research that shows people and businesses move from high tax states to low tax states. You know, when it's not the only factor in their decision making, but it is an important factor when it uh, drives up the, the cost of living, when it drives up the cost of doing business. Um, and on top of that, uh, debt sends a signal that taxes are going to be higher in the future. Um, it creates a reasonable expectation in businesses and individuals that taxes are going to go up to pay down that debt. And so that deters consumer spending, it deters investment, as well as, you know, leading to the out-migration problem. We've lost, over the last five years, the equivalent of the entire city of Aurora in population. Uh, we have among the worst population, population loss in the nation, um, and it, people tell us why they're moving. When you, when you look at public opinion polling, the number one reason they give is the high tax burden. And again, there are other reasons, uh, but high taxes are certainly uh, a contributing factor. And it's one of the things that you can see that is actually different between Illinois and the states people are moving to. So, you know, people like to try to blame the weather. Well, when Illinois was growing, the weather between Illinois and Florida was exactly the same as it is today. You know, that, that hasn't changed really. Um, but what has changed is our debt burdens and our taxes. Um, is is it is it that simply the taxes, uh, you know, as you say, it's not just that, but uh, the state's going to have to address its debt. Uh, the pension debt is a crushing pension debt, which doesn't that mean that invariably Illinois is going to have to do some tough things that may uh, make people uncomfortable, but they have it has to do it, doesn't it? Well, we do have to do tough things, but I would argue we are past the point of diminishing returns when it comes to tax increases. Uh, at this point, anything we do that increases the total tax burden in Illinois is going to drive more people out of the state. It's going to deter investment because we're in competition with uh, our neighboring states and with other states in the country for, for large companies. And the trend is towards lower tax rates. Every one of Illinois' neighbors has cut their income tax rate since we raised it in 2011. And uh, last year alone, nine states uh, cut their personal income tax rates, and I believe another five cut their corporate income tax rates. So the trend in the nation is, is towards lower taxes, and that's what we're competing against. And at the same time, we're talking about raising income taxes significantly, and Governor Pritzker, you know, by my count, there was 20 new or higher taxes and fees uh, that went through in last year's budget and capital plan. And those are taxes and fees that were extremely regressive, uh, that hit consumer spending very hard. Um, you know, things like the gas tax hike, vehicle registration fees, uh, new or higher taxes and online shopping, I could go down the list. Um, but I think what we, we do need to eliminate our debt burdens, but the better way to do it is structural spending reform, not tax hikes. Well, one of the tax hikes that the governor is talking about now is the graduated income tax, although he would uh, argue that, yes, it's a, an increase for some people, the highest earners, but that it would be either a hold harmless or a decrease for lower wage people, mm -hmm. and that that is its selling point. What do you see as it moves forward? Well, the first thing I would say is any potential tax relief uh, for anybody has been more than wiped out 
by the taxes that were raised last year. Uh, so the there there are potential uh, you know thousand dollars in uh, in vehicle taxes alone uh, when you talk about the the new vehicle trade in tax. Uh, the doubling of the gas tax, the increase in vehicle registration fees, trucking registration fees, there's a whole range of things. So the, the tax uh, relief has been wiped out already. Uh, and on top of that, it's not really the first set of rates that are attached to the graduated income tax amendment that we're worried about because the rate schedule that they passed, they're promising would only increase taxes in the top 3%. Our concern is what happens when that's not enough money because it won't be. And now we've given the General Assembly the ability to tax different people at different uh, uh, at different tax rates based on their income. That is a new taxing authority, and it makes it easier for them to raise taxes incrementally. Because under a flat tax system, if you want to increase the tax, you have to make everybody mad at you at the same time. So it's more politically difficult. We saw in 2017, after they raised the income tax, record turnover in the General Assembly. Um, so when that isn't enough money, we're worried they're coming after the middle class. And in fact, that's what we've seen in other states that have made this switch. The last state to do this, to try to, to lower their debt burdens, was Connecticut back in 1996. And they made all the same promises. This was going to lead to property tax relief, middle income tax relief. Um, uh, it was going to balance the budget. And, and none of these promises came through. They've continued to have unbalanced budgets. Middle income taxes actually have gone up by 13%. And property taxes have continued to rise at their historic rate. But of all of the states that do tax income, and there are some that don't, um, it seems that most of them, almost all of them, have graduated rates. They have not seemed to want to move away from them. Uh, are there all, in your view, um, horror stories, or is it successful in, in some places? So I would say I first— mean, is there a right way to do it is really what I'm asking. There's a right way to do tax policy. I, I would argue that uh, we should be looking at the nine states with no income tax. They're, they're the fastest growing in terms of population. Um, they all have balanced budgets, and by the way, they all have lower property taxes. So when people blame our high property taxes and the fact that our income taxes aren't high enough, it, it just doesn't hold any water with me because every state that has no income tax at all also has lower property taxes than Illinois. Um, so I, I don't really think that argument uh, has a lot of value. And, and I would also say that, you know, a lot of those states that the governor likes to say are progressive income tax states, uh, he'll say 32 uh, states have a progressive income tax. 18 of them, the top marginal rate kicks in below Illinois' median family income, which is about $79,000. That's not a tax on the rich. That's a tax on the middle class. Uh, so that's you know what I would argue progressive in name only. Uh, they are technically allowed to charge more than one rate, but it's not the same kind of uh, soak the rich tax plan that Governor Pritzker is talking about. And you know they're including on that list places like Alabama, where the top marginal rate kicks in around two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars. That's their top rate if you have two or three thousand dollars in income. That's not really a progressive income tax state. So I would say that uh, while more states allow that. Um, the trend, again, is towards lower income taxes. And on top of that, given the financial trouble we have, it's not to, it's not to say that this tax plan uh, would be equally bad in every single state were it to be adopted. But in a state with these large debt burdens where our General Assembly has not shown the will to get their spending under control, we're worried this is essentially a blank check or a Trojan horse for middle class tax increases. So what does a state with this kind of tax burden do if it does need revenue to bring down the pension debt for education, for child care, for infrastructure? Uh, 
I mean, when one says get spending under control, that's something that's kind of amorphous and people mm -hmm. and politicians don't always want to talk specifics because it means somebody's going to get hurt. What do they do? Well, we talk specifics. Every single year on our website, IllinoisPolicy.org, we put out a fiscal plan that shows how the state could balance its budget, uh, pay off debt, and get us to the point where we could start lowering taxes. Um, the number one thing we need to do is pension reform. Most other states have done this. The federal government has done this. Private companies have done this. Illinois is trying to preserve a system that's fundamentally unsustainable, and ultimately that's bad for everybody. So when you look at growth in spending over the last 20 years, from the year 2000 to today, growth in pension spending adjusted for inflation is over 500%. Uh, growth in education spending is about 21%. Um, all other spending, which is a category that includes you know, uh, child services, uh, health and human services, MAP grants uh, so poor kids can go to college, the state police, it's actually down in real terms by 32%. So when I say we're overspending, I want to be specific. It's really not that we're overspending on things people value. It's not programmatic overspending. It's, it's overspending on fixed costs, uh, on sort of structural issues like pensions and health care. Uh, and so we've come up with ideas for each of these. For pensions, for example, we, we would amend our Constitution, but we would do it in a way that doesn't take away anything anybody's already earned. In fact, the Constitution would still guarantee what are called accrued benefits or, or benefits for work already performed would be protected. And we would only allow the General Assembly to adjust the future growth rate. So things like the cost of living adjustment or if you're a younger worker who's still working your retirement age, those kinds of things would be on the table. And we've come up with a plan that without taking away a penny already earned would save $2 billion in the state budget, $50 billion from now to 2045, and fully eliminate our pension debt uh, over that time period. Um, one other idea I want to ask you quickly. Uh, what about the concept of broadening the sales tax to, to encompass high-end services? I think that's a good idea. Um, I think that you know broad-based sales taxes in general are uh, more efficient, they're less volatile, um, and because we're becoming more and more a service economy, I think it makes sense. But I would caution anything you do that raises the total tax burden, so all taxes uh, together, um, is going to be bad for the economy at this point. So uh, what, what we really need to do is do that in a revenue-neutral way if it's an idea we want to entertain. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about the state budget and more with Adam Schuster. He's the director of budget and tax research with the Illinois Policy Institute. I want to switch gears a little bit here because we have a lot of things to talk about. And one of them you were, in fact, in Springfield just talking about, and that's ethics. Um, probably the, uh, the headline issue out of Governor uh, Pritzker's State of the State was his statement that uh, lawmakers should not become lobbyists or be lobbyists. Uh, and in fact, he even says maybe other officials shouldn't be doing that either. Uh, where do you stand on that? And where does the Illinois policy stand? Happy to report we are uh, fully in support of those ideas. Um, there were a few things in the governor's speech that I very much liked. Uh, certainly ethics and corruption was a high point. In fact, we have proposed four bills for specific legislative proposals, and the governor uh, mentioned three of those concepts in his speech. That's uh, banning lawmakers from lobbying the executive branch or units of local government. 
it's ending the revolving door so that there's a cooling off period when lawmakers retire and they can't immediately become lobbyists and sort of cash in on their influence and sell our democracy. Um, and then the third would be mandatory voting recusal so that if you have a conflict of interest as a lawmaker, uh, you know, a bill would give you a special benefit above and beyond what the general public would get from it. You can't vote on that bill and that would actually be punishable. And this is something that the vast majority of states have. So we'd sort of be uh, catching up on, on ethics rules. Uh, and then the last one is actually a place where we could be a leader on ethics rules, um, which would be the, the lawmaker ban would be a great place to be a leader, but also strengthening our legislative inspector general to make it uh, a more independent office that's empowered to investigate corruption within the legislature. And that's something that's been talked about a lot, but it's gone nowhere. What do you see as the problem down there? You know, I, I think we, so I want to be careful because there's a lot of good public servants and it's not true that every single person in the legislature is corrupt. But if we're being honest, we have uh, more bad apples in the bushel than most other states. That's historically been true. And I think there is a culture down there uh, that's the opposite of see something, say something. It's uh, keep your mouth shut. And it's it's been, I think a lot of people have been scared of retribution. They've been scared to take these votes and speak out about it. But with these FBI investigations, with, you know, two senators, uh, you know, being convicted with with multiple local government officials and, and all these corruption scandals happening at the same time, I think the political will down there is finally building. Uh, and I think we have someone in the governor's office who is serious about, you know, ending that culture of corruption. Um, he certainly made uh, very serious comments in his, his state of the state address. And I, I'm hopeful, at least, that this General Assembly will be different and that we can actually finally enact some of these ethics reforms. I want to ask you about the atmosphere down there, though. And you've, you've been down there enough to, to see it. How does having the cloud of federal investigations of not just lawmakers and the lawmakers who well, one has already pleaded guilty and another is expected to plead guilty this week— uh, what does that do to the process of getting bills through the legislature when an entity like Commonwealth Edison has to operate differently, when the normal people uh, aren't able to lobby exactly the way they may have before? It's change. Um, I think it's a good change. I, I don't think that the status quo of how we pass legislation, these backroom deals, uh, you know, thousands of pages of legislation filed at the last minute with no opportunity for public comment, with no real opportunity for interest groups or the public to weigh in. Um, I don't think that was a good process. Uh, so, you know, maybe it, maybe there will be a sort of transition period where they have to get used to uh, honest government. Um, but I think that's a good thing. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some other things, uh, mostly in the regulatory uh, area, specifically labor. Mm -hmm. Um, after uh, the years of Governor Rauner basically trying to get right-to-work legislation passed around the state with, um, I would say, limited success, uh, labor is now pushing for a ban on so-called right-to-work. Uh, do you expect that to fly, given the uh, makeup of the House and the Senate? You know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I've, I have seen that they are pushing for that. I, I personally have not been involved in a lot of conversations with lawmakers about that bill. Um, I would just say, you know, if we're going to be talking about putting additional constitutional amendments on the ballot, there's already a progressive income tax amendment that's going to be on the ballot in 2020. I don't think uh, banning right to work 
is is really what the people are clamoring for. People want fair maps. They want uh, you know an end to gerrymandering. People want term limits. They want truly balanced budgets because our current balanced budget requirement is toothless, and they want pension reform. And so I think, you know, and there's a limit on how many <laughs> amendments you can have on the ballot at one time. It's three. And so rather than talking about something that would restrict worker freedom, uh, we should be talking about changes to our political process like redistricting term limits that would help us fight corruption or things like true balanced budgets and pension reform that would help us fix our financial situation. Um, how far do you think Fair Maps is going to get? Again, like you said, people are talking about it. Lawmakers talk about it, but it never gets out of committee if it even gets to committee. Yeah. So my understanding is that there are a lot of people, a lot of reformers in Springfield, uh, Republicans and Democrats, interest groups who sort of straddle both sides of the aisle who are pushing for this. Uh, it was a notable admission from the governor's speech. He did not talk about redistricting reform in his speech on the campaign trail when he was running for office. He was uh, strong on this issue, and he had promised to veto any gerrymandered map, and he had promised to push for an independent commission to draw our legislative maps uh, with the simple idea that uh, politicians shouldn't pick their voters, voters should pick their politicians. Since taking office, uh, he hasn't done much on the issue, and you know, I was in a committee yesterday testifying on ethics and corruption, and, and someone put it beautifully that Corruption really starts with the map drawing process because if you have incumbents who are picking their voters and uh, preventing themselves from ever having to face competition in their elections, that invites special interest money. It invites uh, conflicts of interest, and it's really a breakdown of democracy. Um, so I don't know exactly what the prospects are. I hope the governor will live up to his promise to veto any uh unfairly drawn map, but I also hope he will take action to put a new process in place. Uh, and I should point out that the governor this week in a question and answer session with reporters reiterated his vow not to sign any uh, any unfair map, as he put it. Um, one other uh, thing, Cook County Assessor Fritz Kage, uh, has been calling for commercial property owners to disclose more information about their building's incomes. Um, he says to better judge what they're worth in the assessment process, which has been out of whack in Chicago and in Illinois, for that matter, for, for some time. Um, what's your feeling about that legislation? I mean... The devil's in the details on that one. So I think that the, the general concept isn't, a, a, you know, a bad one. But I think, you know, forcing businesses to disclose uh, the, the type of information that they're asking for in its current form could be unduly burdensome and potentially not get us the results we want. So I think there are ways that we could fix our property tax system uh, without going uh, in that direction. Um, and, and in particular, the assessment system and, and, and trying to make it more fair. Uh, and I think that uh, we really should be focusing less on assessments and more on bringing down the spending of local governments so we can actually lower the tax levies, so we can lower people everyone's tax bills at the same time, whether you're commercial, residential. Um, let's talk about a couple of Chicago issues. First, Chicago Casino. Uh, Chicago could have one now, but what it wants is one with a less burdensome 
tax burden for Chicago that was special just for Chicago mm-hmm. relative to other venues. Uh, is it a better deal for everyone, as the uh, the mayor says, if Chicago gets in the game? I think that Chicago certainly needs revenue, and uh, I think that what we're seeing right now is sort of desperate acts from our governments at the city and uh, state levels. They are, you know, they they legalized recreational cannabis, they expanded gambling, but they did it with such high tax rates um, that they're actually depressing both markets. I mean, nobody wanted the Chicago casino deal. Um, so this is kind of back to what we were talking about earlier at the state level. There, there's a there's a diminishing return to tax hikes at a certain point. Um, and at a certain point, when you raise the tax burden so much, you're, you're uh, damaging the economy. The mayor sees that when it comes to the casino. Uh, they see that when it comes to uh, congestion. They, she's talked about, you know, reducing congestion by, by raising taxes on it. If you raise taxes on income, as as the governor has said, um, you're going to reduce people's incentive to work. So rather than uh, chasing revenue, whether it's through cannabis, a casino, um, the city also needs structural spending reform. Um, Chicago alone, just in the city, and it's the four controlled funds and the four related funds, they have more pension debt than 44 U.S. states. That's why we have such a low credit rating in Chicago. Um, so I think Chicago also needs pension reform more than it needs a casino. What could, is Chicago in a position to do, especially since much of what it needs to do, it has to go to the state to get permission? Uh, they can go to the state and ask for permission. Mayor Emanuel had endorsed uh, a constitutional amendment to fix pensions, but he waited until he was sort of a lame duck. He waited until he was on his way out the door. And I think that's an acknowledgement that there are political difficulties with uh, with this issue. Um, but I think that they we need Mayor Lightfoot to show leadership, to say that this is the right thing to do. And she's said very good things about pensions in the past. She said, uh, you know, we need structural spending reform, the 3% compounding uh, uh, post-retirement raise, I call it, because it's not really a COLA, um, is unsustainable. But then she's sort of stopped short of actually demanding the constitutional amendment. She needs the constitutional amendment because by the end of her first term, the pension payments she'll have to make will be $1 billion more expensive than her first year in office. Um, So she needs to become the biggest advocate in the state for that constitutional amendment if she wants to have a successful term and if she wants to turn city finances around. But in a city that's labor-intensive, as Chicago is, what is the argument to political figures here uh, that can counter labor saying you're taking away benefits that our members have fought for Mm -hmm. and worked for and earned uh, throughout their careers. Well, if I could just first briefly uh, give you a couple anecdotes. So in Arizona, they were facing almost the exact same situation we're facing here. After the Great Recession, it became clear that their pension funds were unsustainable and they tried to amend it by statute. Their Supreme Court said no. The firefighters union in that state actually led the effort to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot to allow them to enact pension reform. In Michigan, AFSCME, which is also the largest state union here, supported pension reform because they knew the pension funds would go insolvent without it. The only promise that really matters is a fully funded sustainable pension system. And as long as we have you know, huge pension debt and declining funding ratios, their benefits aren't secure. Uh, so I would say pension reform is not breaking our promise. It's the only way we can keep our promise to provide secure retirement benefits to our public servants. 
do you think that that, and we only have a few seconds, do you think that argument is going to be a winning one in Chicago? I think if the right people make it and uh, if they make it loudly enough and honestly enough. That is Adam Schuster. He is with the Illinois Policy Institute. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Uh, To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That's WBBMNewsRadio.com. You can also find our podcasts on Radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you will be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.